Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby. Let's join Mike and Kentucky Dave as they strive to be informative, entertaining, and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. July is going to be a little easier on us than June was. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And uh, if nothing else, the anticipation of the upcoming NAT is going to keep us focused. Well, tonight for episode 94, we've got somebody new in a third chair, Dave. Somebody new to the show. Yep. Our One of our Ottawa friends, Ian McCauley. Ian, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're good. Uh, I don't think uh, anybody in our model sphere anyway that doesn't already know you knows you so <laughs> why don't you introduce yourself my name is ian mccauley i live in ottawa ontario canada and when the podcast started uh, mike and dave and i started corresponding a fair bit we got to be friends and we've actually only met once at, at the show in in hamilton last er, earlier in the year but uh, we spent a lot of time chatting online and stuff and uh, I, I help out with the with the website and uh, so it's it's a good combination i think well and you recently retired too right i am i uh, recently <laughs> retired after almost 38 years in the healthcare business and uh, now my only work is I, I worked uh, our local hobby shop, the Hobby Center, one day a week, and it's uh, it's like being paid to hang out at the Hobby Center. It's 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 a lot of fun. That's that's every every modeler's retirement plan: retire and go work at the hobby shop one or two days a week. The thing that's funny is uh, so the the chap that runs it, Bill Chapel, uh, I've known him for almost forty years, and we, we we've been good friends. And I've always joked that when I retired, I was going to come work with him. So when I uh, last fall, when I had the date set, I said, uh, I said to him, I said, so I'm finally retiring. And he said, well, when do you want to start? <laughs> so it worked out great. Well, at least he held up his end of the deal. Exactly. Well, uh, Ian, tell people what you model. Uh, a little bit of everything. Um, so like everybody else, I started uh, as a kid, uh, started with cars and then switched to armor only because you could paint it with enamel paints with a brush and it would look good as opposed to the cars, which never looked good. And of course, uh, did that up until I discovered girls and cars and that sort of thing. And then um, left it for many years. And early in my career, I was working as an EMT. And uh, one day we were, I, I worked 24 hour shifts in little towns around Ottawa. And uh, one day we were out at a hardware store or something to pick up light bulbs or something. And there was a model kit there, a Tamiya uh, Panther kit. And I thought, hmm, that would be something to do. You, you can only watch so much TV when you're in the ambulance space. And um, so I got, got back into it and um, initially joined the local model car club. But then I ended up joining uh, the local IPMS. And I, I got quite involved. I was involved with AMPS for many years, uh, the, the Canadian branch of AMPS. And uh, I, I build a little bit of everything. I build planes, I build cars, I build armor. Being a car builder, it'll be interesting to, as we go through the episode to have your perspective, because you still do build a fair number of cars, don't you? I do, yeah. I mean, cars are my first love. I, I'm a car guy. I'm a, I'm a Mopar guy. I've got a, 
I've got a 64 uh, Canadian Valiant in the uh, in the garage that I take to car shows and drive to work and play with and stuff. So I, I'm I'm a dyed in the wool car guy. So uh, it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, car car kits are all um, you know a million years old. Most of the car kits that are on the market today, the the molds were amortized during the Nixon administration. <laughs> um, but uh, so they're they're a fair bit of work. So so when I do cars, it's sort of a a project of love, putting a lot of effort into it. Armor, I find you can just slap them out of the box because they're so good, such good kits. And uh, thanks to you, Dave, and thanks to uh, to Chris Wallace, I've gotten back into airplanes. Don't tell Chris, but I prefer one seventy second. Yeah, and um, yeah, and the planes are are new to me, so they're the they're the thing that I'm I'm trying out new things and and, and stuff because I, I they're probably the newest to me. Ian, being a Canadian, wouldn't that have been the Elder Trudeau administration, not the Nixon administration? Yeah, we don't like to think about that. Okay. <laughs> No, we don't either. <laughs> right. uh, on our side, yeah, either one. <laughs> Trudeau, Trudeau was more of a crook, though. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, well, Nixon said he wasn't, so maybe. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> or at least Rich Little said he said that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, back on track here, Ian. Uh, you've you've listened to the show, so you know what's up. What's up in your model sphere? Not a whole lot in terms of uh, building or anything, but the hobby center, which where I work now, is is moving, and they've rented a new place that's just down the road. But it's it's a better spot, and it's uh, it's just much better. It's got uh, access to the road and everything. So I've been going in there with Bill, the owner, and we've been knocking down walls and changing lights and doing all kinds of stuff and. Uh, the, the the opening will be at some point this fall the the changeover and it'll probably be a, a soft changeover with you know moving from one store to the other but uh, lots of fun lots of you know lots of fun to take a, a sledgehammer and knock down walls and stuff <laughs> now is this is this going to be a a shock to the system of all of the Ottawa modelers who've been used to for the last 30 40 years or whatever go into the one location and now they're going to have to learn a new route or is it close enough by that it's not going to be too bad for them oh it shouldn't be it, it's less than a kilometer away from the uh, from the old store and, and bill already did a video where he literally uh had somebody filming out the window and he drove from the old store to the new store um <laughs> bill's been around since 86 but he's had uh, a number of different locations over the years this last one he's been in i think about 15 years but uh, you know people know enough to uh, to move along with him and it'll be a much better store it'll be much better lit it'll be uh, th- there's a bowling alley beside it that's licensed it's wonderful great you can go <laughs> over and get a beer that's it <laughs> well dave what's up in your model sphere my friend well, uh, for people who follow me on Facebook, they know that I got some modeling inspiration. The wife and youngest child and I, we drove from Louisville to Buffalo. And Mike, I know you have no idea what that drive is like. And uh, wife and youngest daughter wanted to do Niagara Falls. The youngest daughter had never done it. The wife hadn't been there in years and years and years. So they did the whole thing, the Maid of the Mist, the Cave of the Winds, the the Space Needle on the Canadian side, and they had a great time. Since I had done it all, I dropped them off, and I got to go to the Maritime Park in Buffalo, 
where the USS Sullivan, the USS Little Rock, and the USS Grunion, which was a World War II submarine, converted post-war, continued service life after, are all preserved as museum ships. Uh, In addition, they are, that's the entry point of the Erie Canal, and they are building a replica of the first canal boat to actually travel the Erie Canal. So it was a, it was a fantastic day. Uh, got to spend a lot of those guys have done a great job. The city has done a great job. I found it very inspiring. I also am here to tell you that our grandfathers and great grandfathers were heroes because I got on that World War II submarine. And I am here to tell you, I am not sure we could motivate people today, even dumb 18, 19, 20-year-olds who think they're invincible, to get on a World War II-style submarine and live like that and fight combat. It's It was humbling and really impressive and kind of brought from some context to, you know, the, the models that we build, uh, that they're more than just the objects themselves. So I found it very inspiring. I also got to listen to some uh, modeling podcasts to get caught up uh, on the way up, uh, listen to what was at that time the latest Model Geeks podcast, but one dropped while I was on vacation while I was actually up there. And uh, that fired me up to make sure that I'm going to get my F8 across the finish line. So we'll talk about that later. But I'm I'm inspired and also can't wait to go to the Nationals. And uh, here's where I call Ian out for not getting a ticket and flying down to the Nationals. <laughs> I'll be there next year, I promise. Yes, Madison, <laughs> Wisconsin. You have no excuses for not going to Madison, Wisconsin. That's right. It's 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 drivable. So. Yeah, it's about the same distance it is from for you to there as it is for us to San Marcos. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's it's yep. like within forty five minutes of the same distance. So, <laughs> well, you you Chris and Evan in a car together sharing driving duties, you'll be fine. Yeah, I, we, we, I've talked to Chris, but I haven't mentioned it with Evan yet. But we haven't talked about uh, whether we'll drive or whether we'll uh, we'll fly. But uh, I, I'm up for a road trip. It's uh, it's lots of fun. So, Mike, uh, what's your model sphere been like? Well, after the consternations around getting June out the door, um, <laughs> I'm trying to navigate the holes we have in the schedule for the rest of the year and trying to figure out what we're going to do. Uh, while we're in San Marcos, as far as the podcast is concerned, and uh, we've probably got some discussion topics for the ride down. We're going to have plenty of time with each other. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, as you remember, when we went to Omaha, we planned out like 15 episodes uh, just just sitting there spitballing while we were on the road. So I'm hoping we'll be able to do that again with Evan in the car. I'm hoping that maybe we'll get to record a little on the trip. Uh, I'm sure we'll do that. So That'll be fun. That is it for my model sphere. Okay. Uh, Ian, you know the tradition, and uh, uh, I know that you're prepared. Ooh, I heard it. Okay, Ian, what is your modeling fluid? I am drinking a, a beer from a brewery called Perth Brewery. Perth is a little town outside of Ottawa. And it's called Last Duel Lager. 
and it has a little story on the side about the last duel in Canada. It was in 1833 in Perth, the last fatal duel, where two guys were fighting over the an insult to a young lady, apparently. Right. Um, we were at a car show one time in Perth, and uh, the brewery was there, and they were they were handing the stuff out for free, and it was lovely. So now it's available in the store, and uh, it, it's very nice, 4.5% alcohol. Uh, just a very, very smooth lager, a nice summertime drink. Well, good. Uh, you know, uh, funny thing, we uh, as Kentucky lawyers, when you're sworn into the bar, one of the things you have to actually swear to this day is that you have never fought or acted as a second in a duel. What does what does a second do in a duel? The second is the guy who uh, he is the guy who communicates with the other party to arrange the terms of the duel, what weapon, where, when, and the second acts in the stead of the person who's dueling should something happen. Oh, uh, okay. So basically it's it's kind of your best man. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, to, to act as a second in, in a duel is to arrange the details. So oh, okay. <laughs> So, Mike, I, I know you haven't acted as a second in a duel, but I'm sure that you've got a modeling fluid. Before I, I ask you about yours, I'll tell you that mine is, you know me, I don't like to repeat on these. I'm try, I try to have a new modeling fluid every single time. However, I'm making an exception here and repeating because after I finished at the Buffalo Maritime Park, I checked Yelp and found out that there was a a Hofbrau house two and a half blocks from the Maritime Park. (laughs) So I went over to Hofbrau house and had a really nice meal and got a growler of their Hefeweizen uh, to bring back with me. So I am having Hofbrau house Hefeweizen and uh, we already know it's going to be good. So Mike, what are you drinking? (laughs) Uh, I'm on the uh, courtesy of Jeff Groves, Russell's Reserve, 10-year. I want you to compliment me on my level of self-control. I had both of those bottles for two months and did not tap into your bottle of Russell's. It even had a little dust on it. Yes, that's right. I that's said. pretty commendable. You know, you know, it's a good friend when. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I put it away. I tried to put it out of sight and uh, uh, wait for Mike to show up to July fourth so that I could make sure that he got it. It's a it's a smaller than average pour, and I've got a big old hydro flask full of uh, quality H two O. Oh, okay, okay. So you're you're moderating throughout the episode. That's right. I okay. ran this morning. I'm still. Oh. Dehydrated. Still still down for some reason. Oh, okay. Well, you're getting old, man. I guess so. (laughs) This isn't like when you and I first knew each other and you were in your 20s and you were running God daily. Pretty much. Yeah. But that's not modeling. That's the thing that happens, though, is you you still feel like you're, you're 25 until you try to do something and then you're like, I must be sick. There's something wrong with me. I can't do that. And then you mentioned that to your wife and she looks at you like you're an idiot and says, well, you're not 21. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dave, the mailbag is commendably full. Good. Always, not, always good to have the mailbag. 
not like uh, thinking maybe we should have done just a listener mail episode full, but uh, yeah, we got some good stuff here. So Ian, if you got a comment, just chime in. All right. Well, first up, Dave, uh, our friend, Mike Idacavage from Atlanta. Yep. Remember we met him in Las Vegas and then again in, uh, yes. And he brought, he he brought an SS2 to Omaha just to stick it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we go way back as we hashed out earlier, uh, in Las Vegas, but, uh, he, he has a, a, a Nats tip that you did not include in your list or in our episode dealing with uh, okay. prepping for going to the show. Well, considering that he volunteers at registration every year, I'll be interested to hear this. It's a tip. He says it's a really good one, but he rarely hears this recommendation is to bring a sweatshirt or something long sleeve to the show. <laughs> Even though the location might be in the South and, and also in the middle of a hot summer, uh, the contest and vendor rooms tend to be, you know, sub 70 sometimes. Yes, that is right. Especially in the mornings. And the, I can tell you this because my father was uh, in commercial heating and air conditioning, industrial level, all of his life. And people's body heat puts out an amazing amount of heat and particularly large crowds. So what most spaces anticipating a large crowd tend to do. This is movie theaters, uh, sports arenas, convention centers, is that late at night or early in the morning, they will crank the AC on full. And so when you walk in in the morning, it's chilly. And the reason they do that is the AC actually can't keep up with the ambient body heat of a large number of individuals gathered in a confined space. So that if they don't do that by the afternoon, you know, the place is unbearable. So yeah, that's actually a good point. You know, bring a long sleeve t-shirt or a sweatshirt just to stuff in a backpack or something. That's a good idea. Well, Apparently, when he was in Phoenix and the outside temperature was 110 plus, yes, uh, there are more than one person going to the local sporting goods store looking for for sweatshirts, <laughs> sweatshirts for the for the inside. I was at that. I was at those conventions, and he is absolutely correct. It was 115 degrees outside. I mean, you walked out, and it was like getting a hit in the face with a baseball bat. But when you walked into the convention center. It was maybe 70, but the problem is you just came out of 115 degree heat. And so it felt like you had walked into an ice chest. <laughs> you get ice cream headache. Walking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Mike, thanks for the tip. And uh, I guess hopefully we'll see you in the registration line in San Marcos. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, this next one uh, I missed. It's one of those stupid Google Mail click and drag, and it went into stinking a black hole somewhere. We're not perfect. Derek Post. And Derek was at, uh, he was with us at Heritage Con that one night at the house. Yes. Yep. He wanted to give out a hobby shop shout out. And the name of the place is, uh, you guessed it, the hobby shop. Uh, <laughs> 200 Main Street in Ames, Iowa. It's 20 minutes north of Des Moines. Yep. And uh, he says this is a cool old Old school hobby shop's been continuously running for 74 years. Now that's something right there. Yeah, those are the best. 
That's a long time for any kind of business. Because you know there's going to be stuff on the shelves. You it's know like that shop in Germany I'm always always talking about. Exactly. You're you're going to dig through and there's going to be something covered in dust and it's an old kit that you've been looking for for 25 years that sells on eBay for ridiculous prices and the sticker on the store is the price that was originally put on it when it came into the store. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. Is that the chap that was the airline pilot? Yeah, I think he was a pilot. Yeah, I think he. I think he was a military pilot. And now he's an airline pilot, if yeah. I remember. If it's if it's the chap I'm thinking of that I was chatting with, it is. Yes, and and he was. And it turned out that he was able to fly in to get to Hamilton. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Okay, it's the same guy. Well, he says his shop current owner, Mr. Mike Templeton, bought the shop in 2016 after he retired from the railroad, and you know the previous owner wanted to retire. And he says the guy's got the right attitude. When he asked him about the Gundam, he said, if it's plastic, people can build it. <laughs> now, one of the things that I'm seeing working at the at the Hobby Center is the business end of things. And, um, you know, you, you don't want to be caught out with the second best model that, that comes out because nobody wants it. And even if you, you, you don't like Gundam and you don't like, uh, you know, everything it represents and all that sort of thing, just be happy because it's keeping your your brick and mortar hobby shop going because you would not believe how many kids come through and buy that stuff. Oh it's yeah. Un- unbelievable. And you know what? They're just modelers like we are. They're just they're just younger. They yep. really are. And yep. it's a gateway into all sorts of modeling cuz I will tell you the lot of the guys that we're having come into the club uh recently uh, and MMCL is at its highest number of members ever, like 120. And uh, a lot of the guys who are coming in younger, Gundam, sci-fi, etc., they come and they build, and it is not unusual for them, once they've been participating for a while, for them to be curious about an armor kit or a car kit or whatever. So by the same token, we have some of our armor guys who are suddenly doing some sci-fi stuff. So, you know, the cross-pollinization is great. And like you said, it's keeping those brick-and-mortar hobby shops alive. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And and the kids are just – I call them kids. They're terrible. They're, they're in their yeah. early 20s to, to 30s. But they're, sure. they're just as enthusiastic as any other modeler that yep. you see and uh, you see them come in and they're chatting away and it just, you know, it, it looks like me and my buddies only instead of talking about cars or, or, or tanks, they're, they're talking about Gundam stuff. So sure. You know, it's all the same thing. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks Derek. And uh, I hope we get to see you in uh, San Marcos as well. Oh, here's a good one, Dave. Up next is uh, Mr. Duncan Young from uh, IPMS Hamilton. Okay. Um, uh, in fact, I got an update today. The Moose Roo Cup kit has been dispatched. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I can we'll, uh, I can go so so many directions with that. <laughs> uh, I want to see what they do. Okay, the last two were a Gundam and a seventy second scale aircraft. I'm kind of rooting. I'll be honest with you, Ian. I'm kind of rooting for Car. Uh, could be. We'll see. Allegedly, the box has do not open until uh, August 1st. Uh, oh, my Lord. Well, You're going to have to at least peek, even if you don't tell anybody. T- 
tell them what. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, if it, if it is a car and you don't want to build it, I can be the uh, the Mojo <laughs> special car, uh, you know, consultant or something like that. <laughs> I tried to, to uh, draft Lufram to do our 72nd scale aircraft. And believe it or not, he was uninterested in doing that last year. So uh, he's, he's, a, he's an honorable man. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Clearly he is. <laughs> All right, Duncan and the rest of you jokers at IPMS Hamilton, bring it on. We'll see what we got. I'm, I'm really anxious to get it because uh, I'm, I'm on deck this year. Do you remember the Heller bug kits? The one-to-one yeah. scale stag beetle? Yes. Now, that that would be a great one. <laughs> Shut up, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. There's only like 12 parts. You can't complain about something like that. <laughs> up next, we've got uh, an email from Mr. Eric. Uh, I don't know if it's Melo or Mellet. He's a teenage modeler from northern Colorado. Okay, And he says this question may have a, a variety of answers, which he's anxious to hear our response for. Um, what's our favorite type or class of aircraft or armor to model? He likes heavy bombers and tank destroyers to offer some context. I don't know. Ian, what do you like? What's your, what's your favorite kind of cars? What's your favorite kind of uh, military vehicle? So for military vehicles, I do German and Soviet World War II and Soviet and Eastern Bloc uh, Cold War. Uh, for cars, I like 60s cars, muscle cars, a lot of race cars, gassers, that sort of thing. And for aircraft, I like anything that's really weird looking. So, you know, uh, Italian stuff, J- Japanese stuff, British stuff from the Second World War. The more awkward it is, the better I like it. Dave? Well, uh, armor. Uh, I have a particular interest in armored cars. I think they're cool. Uh, our friend Evan is currently building the French uh, Panhard 178, and uh, uh, I find the the pictures that he sent us inspirational. So, who knows? I may venture down there. You can buy one at Nats. Yeah, exactly. Aircraft. You know, it's so ver- it's whatever strikes at the moment, and it. Now, I have themes that I concentrate on. Japanese World War II, Ploesti Raiders, uh, Pearl Harbor. You know, I've got little theme stuff that I'm interested in here and there. But, you know, it's all over the place. Like MiG-17, F-8, P-51C, there's no rhyme or reason to it. I wish I could explain it, but... uh, when I die and somebody the, the, the inevitable people come over to look at cleaning out my model cases, uh, they're going to be horribly confused. <laughs> Mike, how about, well, I, I know Soviet World War II armor is just the thing that floats your boat. Yeah, that's the big thing. And I, I do like Sturmgeschutz, the German self-propelled guns. Uh, I like... French subjects from World War Two, yeah. Uh, kind of like Ian, I, I like the the Soviet Cold War era stuff. But uh, when the when the Warsaw Pact dissolved and the and the walls came down, and we got a lot more visibility of that stuff, my interest in that kind of waned a little bit when yeah. it wasn't so. I don't know what to mysterious. Call it. Mysterious, yeah. I guess that would be the way to put it. But I, I still like still like that stuff, which uh, is now all in combat in Ukraine. 
T-55s, T-62s. Did you ever think you would see that? Heck, they're World War One Maxim machine guns. It's unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, we talk about the float planes. I like the float planes, World War II era of naval aviation. I like the float planes a lot. And uh, really, I like carrier-based um, World War II era stuff as well. It's kind of, that's that's been, that comes from my childhood, actually. In regard to float planes, do you find the float plane more interesting or the catapult more interesting? Just the whole the whole ball of wax around that. Because you've really done, you know, if people are following you on the dojo, um, you've you've really put a lot into the uh, catapulture building. You seem to have a great love of wanting to weather it up as as thoroughly as possible. Whereas I think a lot of folks who build a float plane and catapult just think of the catapult as something to display the float plane on. Well, we'll talk about that more in, in the Benchtop Halftime Report. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's certainly true. Moving on, Rock Rozak from Detail and Scale has uh, sent us an update. And uh, he'd like us to mention their new book, Dave. Yes. Uh, Detail and Scale Series Volume 16, the B-24 Liberator, also includes the Navy PB-4Y-1 and 4Y-2. And God Will somebody use this as an excuse to bring out a new 72nd scale PB4Y2? Please, 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 please. <laughs> What's funny because the PB4Y-1 has two tails. Right. PBY4-2 has one tail. One tail. That's right. That is <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> so Burton Rock, there you go. Check out the book. I'm sure it's going to be a good one. And uh, and there are plenty of great B-24 kits out there. You've got the Academy kit and the Hasegawa kit. And uh, uh, they're, they're, one of those is on my short list for this year. Um, I've got to get moving again, building faster. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, the detail. I've, if you want to talk about detail and scale for a second, I'm building this F-8 and one of the most useful Books for me in building that F8 has been the detail and scale book on the F8. Um, it's fantastic. Well, I'm sure I'll pick up a copy of this one because uh, you want those Plesti Raiders to, to look yep. good, Dave. Absolutely, <laughs> I do. And the B24 is the first kit I ever built, the monogram kit. Me and Dad tried to build that one. We did. We got it together. Well, good. Good choice. Up next, uh, Michael Reese from Germany. And I think this is Evan's friend, right? This is... Uh, yes, this is Hamilcar Barkas. That's right. Uh, he's got some comments about model shows in North America and other parts of the world versus kind of the more Central and Western Europe. So North America, Australia, and a lot of the Eastern European shows seem to be arranged like a big model contest with uh, only limited or non non-existent individual exhibitors. Right. He wants to know if that's true and what are the merits of that or why we do it that way. And then by contrast, Germany, Austria, France, Belgium, these countries, the shows are more club display based and the, the contest is kind of second nature to that, not really being representing more than five to ten percent of all the models you might see in the entire exhibition. And huh. he thinks he thinks that that gets more people talking and, and you got you know you're the clubs are behind their tables with their displays of the individual 
exhibitioners and a lot of exchange of ideas. And, and he thinks it kind of fosters that type of mentality, thinks that that's advantageous. And you know, he hopes to get over to one of our bigger shows to check that out in the United States or even some of the Eastern European shows that are kind of that way. Model World Model Expo or Motion are a couple in Europe he's interested in going to. Uh, yeah. But back to the back to the point, you know, why are things that way? And do we have a preference or I've got an idea. I think that Americans and to an extent Australians and to a slightly lesser extent Canadians, we're all more, com- for want of a better word, competitive. And so uh, a contest is is more natural, I think, for us. Whereas in particularly Western Europe, I think the social attitudes are are where competition is less valued and and a more societal type display and interchange of information is more valued. So I suspect that that at least has something to do with our our differing national characters. Yeah, that makes sense because uh, it's definitely a big difference for sure. Now, I will tell you, I mean, between Canadians and Americans, we we joke all the time and I'm I I relentlessly have fun with our Canadian friends online. But to the to a great extent, you go to Hamilton, you go to to Heritage Con, that's almost indistinguishable other than the fact that it's the biggest one-day show I've ever been to in my life, it is almost indistinguishable from any U.S. model contest. Yeah, I agree. They're they're very, very similar. Whereas now, uh, Jim's not here, but of course Jim would point out that uh, out in Seattle that they run that very successful Museum of Flight show, which is all display, no contest at all. It's also no vendors, but I kind of think that that's more the exception that proves the rule rather than any sort of trend or any sort of nature of contests here in the U.S. or in Canada. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I could talk all night about this because in my modeling career or hobby career, I've gone from you know, building stuff specifically for contests and, and, and to win and and everything to uh, a number of years ago, I, I basically threw out all of the stuff I had, mostly because I didn't know what models it went with. I wasn't smart enough to say, you know, write something on the back of the, mo- of the metal and say, oh, this third place was that one and stuff. But now I... I um, uh, I would make a good European because I, I, I prefer just going and chatting and seeing the stuff. And I don't really care about the competition. I mean, I put in stuff for, um, for, you know, to support the shows and stuff, but yeah. I can honestly say I, I don't, uh, I don't, I no longer care whether I win or, or not because it, it, to me, it's just the fun of being there. And that uh, to Ian, I think that's, there's a progression that a new modeler goes through and it's stages. And one of these days I want to write this all out and actually lay down all the stages. 
but modelers go from just starting out modeling, afraid to enter your contest, entering your first contest, getting your first win, then building for the contest. The awards become very important. Then you get to the point where you realize that the awards aren't the thing that, that me, and then either you stop entering contests or you continue to enter, but you realize you're doing it to support the show, not to win the award. There is a progression that I think 90% of modelers go through if they stick in the hobby and stick in going to contests over the long term that ultimately leads to that point where you're at that, yeah, I'll enter. Hey, it's nice to win, but I'm really here for all of the other stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And don't get me wrong, I'm happy when I when I do win something. I mean, there's a picture of me somewhere from uh, a show I was at, and I won like seven medals, and I've got them all around my neck, and Chris took a picture of me with them all. Um, but it, it's, you know, I was at a show one time, and uh, one of the guys that was with us, his his model didn't win, and, and he thought it was best in show, and he spent the entire rest of the uh, the model contest and time sitting in the hotel room watching TV. He wouldn't, wouldn't come out, and it was <laughs> just, I remember at the time just thinking, you know, this has got to be 35 years ago, and I just remember thinking this is... This is just ridiculous. You but know? that it's, is that is a stage I think many modelers pass through where yeah. it, it's important to them and there's only a point after which they come to the realization that it isn't. I really do think that's a stage that most folks pass through. I I will admit I pass through it as well. Yeah. In fact in fact, I stopped entering contests for five or seven years. Because I realized I started caring about whether I won or not. And the moment I started caring about whether I won or not, it took away a lot of the enjoyment from the hobby. So Mm -hmm. there was a period of about five to seven years where I went to contests all the time, but I stopped entering completely just because I didn't like that aspect of myself and my attitude and then ended up just getting eventually getting past it. Right. I, I also had a thing which was funny is where I, I would, you know, build a, a model for a contest and think it was a great model and it would do nothing. And other ones that I had just built for fun would be winning all kinds of things and everybody liked them. And, and it was all oh, yeah. kind of puzzling to me. It's like, okay, well, this one that I, I went the extra mile on is doing nothing. And these ones that I just threw <laughs> together for fun are, are everybody's liking them. So it's, yeah. Any given Saturday, that's that's the that's the only way to look at it, you know. Yeah. In closing of his first paragraph, asked, "Is there any particular reason for this, or is it a cultural bias or something?" Dave, I think you touched on on some of that. Yeah. Uh, um, the particular reason, I think, as an engineer, it's it's the worst reason of all. It's because it's always been that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, we could elaborate here and have some fun with it and piss off a bunch of people listening probably and <laughs> we'll probably save that conversation for uh the, folks the trip who, to san marcos san marcos and the folks who know are going to be there who... yeah that's right <laughs> anyway thanks michael and uh i think we still need to get him on this show at some point yeah what is next oh i'm about through the the regular mail dave the last okay. one michael Karnalka from uh 
New York City. All right. This is the question. He's got the question for us. We're, we're back in sync now. We got one a week from him. Good. I feel like I know this guy. I hear his voice. Yeah, I, I hear his name so often. Yep. Well, I hope he comes to a show and we actually get to meet him face to face. You walked into a bookstore and there was a large volume entitled Blank, the Unauthorized Story, told for the first time in full shocking detail. Which, which model company would you want this volume to be about? And I'll tell you what, I'll deviate a little bit. Um, okay. Let's, 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 let's open up the entire model sphere to this. Blank, the true untold story. Ah. Uh, mm-hmm. I got mine. Okay. Okay, uh, go ahead. You go. The, the life and times of Miguel Jimenez. <laughs> <laughs> That, that, that would be a good one, given the progression through the hobby that that the Spanish school and everything that uh, represented, uh, that would be great. Because I don't think, I mean, you hear nor- stories, you, you've seen some stuff, we know some of the things that happened, but I would love to have the full unexpurgated version. Well, that's a big word. <laughs> well, I'm a lawyer, unexpurgated. He gets money for that word. That's right. I'm, char- I'm, char- I'm charging thirteen fifty word. It's a thirteen dollar and fifty cent word. So, Ian, you go next. I've always wanted to like be able to see something and, and see it visually, like on a on a YouTube thing or something. I'd love to see something where it starts off in in the boardroom and they say we should make a model of whatever. And then they, they, they do their marketing, decide it would sell, and then exactly how it's done, how they, you know, how they contact museums, how they contact owners of the real thing, how they do all this stuff, uh, how they do the, the, the scanning of it all, how they make it. Because I, I know it's changed so much from sure. back in the day when people would just carve it and then they'd make molds of it. I, I'd love to see something like that. But, you know, almost like a TV show where you could tune in every week and, and follow it and see uh, see what they were doing. Because it's just it's so interesting how they do stuff now. See, Ian, you're like me. I really have an interest in the back end of the hobby, the business end of the hobby. Because I think as modelers that, you know, we're all out here sitting here. Why is Why are they releasing another ME109? Why isn't there a kid of this? Right. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think that as modelers, we, you know, this is a business. If these guys weren't making money, we wouldn't have any of this. Right. And so I I am endlessly fascinated as, a, as an ardent capitalist. I am endlessly fascinated with all of that stuff. So if, if you get that, uh, if you get that documentary produced, I will download it and watch it. Fund it. Yeah. Yeah. You can fund it. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, you know, that's, that would be interesting from, from somebody's brain fart to a kit shrink wrapped on a hobby shop shelf Yeah, and, and, and everything in between. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people make the mistake too, of thinking that these model companies are, are the size of general motors or something. And they don't realize how small a lot of these companies are and how few, 
people there are and how many things are, are, are farmed out and stuff. It's, you know, it's, it, it, I think it's, that's quite interesting. Well, I think it's changed too, because while some of the companies, you know, like monogram in themselves weren't that big uh, for a time, particularly in the, when I was in childhood in the seventies, uh, they were a subsidiary of Mattel toys. Right. But, so I'm sure that bled in, in, at that time in, of history for that particular kit brand that uh, you had a bunch of toy people driving that thing yeah. right? and how that influenced it. And that's, that's all changed for a lot of these newer companies. It's not so much um, coming from that kind of marketing mindset. I don't think may, and for uh, some of them, I think it probably still is. And that's why they're not at the top of their game. A lot of it's enthusiast driven though, too. Like the, um, the Salvino's uh, uh, stock car oh, kits. Yeah. I mean, right. a few years ago, you couldn't give your stock car kits away at a show. You know, they'd be sitting there with five bucks on them. Nobody want them. And these guys have taken it and, and just reintroduced it. Now that these kits come out and they're, you know, they're 60, 70 bucks a pop. And uh, Bill orders them in and boom, they're gone. They're out, you know. So it's yeah. it's just funny to see how something that you thought was dead in the water has, has been revitalized. I'm going to go similar to Ian. What I would love is the book or documentary that gives us a behind-the-scenes look at either fine molds or Aoshima or, uh, you know, one of the other Japanese manufacturers who we see only a portion of their kits, who we see... You know, why aren't they making more Star Wars kits? Why aren't they doing this when it turns out that Gundam and all of that stuff is their driving force? And would really love to see a, a full blown, you know, uh, behind the MTV behind the music documentary on what goes on at those companies and why they're making the decisions they are and why they send some stuff for export and not others and uh, how big their Gundam market is and how big the girls and Panzer stuff is. I just, I mean, it's culturally so different that I don't think that we have, but the slightest grasp on what's going on in the Japanese market. Right. Yeah, no, that would be good for sure. Well, Dave, that's it for the uh, email channel. Is there much on, on Facebook Messenger? Well, on Facebook, I've had a few uh, interactions. One, uh, David Williams, who had contacted us previously regarding a bourbon choice for toasting a, a squadron mate that had now passed. Uh, we recommended Weller Green Label. They ultimately ended up going with Eagle Rare. I think we can both agree that that was a fine choice. John Fluck uh, from IPMS Dunlin, or Dunlin, I guess. They're reminding us of their model contest being held October 14th, 2023. If you've got a chance, get on up there. And... Um, Finally, Ethan Eidenmill had contacted us and talked about some of the difficulties that he had had regarding MMP paints and the mixing and consistency between batches and ratios and paints and thinners, and uh, basically had uh, 
talked to, talked about some of the difficulties he's experienced, but some of the fact that other people do this and swear by it. So that was just kind of an interesting conversation. So, well, I, I forwarded that generally to Dr. Strangebrush and yep. uh, Ethan, if you're listening, uh, either reach out to John Miller directly or give me a nod. That's okay for me to send your email address to him. And, and if I've got it, I'll do that. Um, it, it was a little more interesting than that, Dave, he'd actually tried two different, Mission models paints thinners, and they both clump the mission models paint. Yeah, so interesting problem. Um, I'm sure Dr. Miller will have something to say about it. That's the highlights from the uh, Facebook DMs for the last for the last couple of weeks. This is the point in the episode where if you haven't done so previously, please go to whatever podcasting app you're listening on and rate the podcast. Please give it five stars. It helps drive up the visibility of the podcast. Uh, Also subscribe if you haven't subscribed. And finally, if you know a modeling friend who doesn't listen to our podcast, we would appreciate if you would Recommend Plastic Model Mojo. A recommendation from the f- a friend is the only real way to guarantee a growing podcast. We continue to grow. We continue to have more listeners as well as more people joining the uh, uh, Plastic Model Dojo on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. We appreciate it. And while you're doing that, please check out our fellow podcast, blog, and YouTube friends. You can check out all the podcasts by going to www.modelpodcast.com. That's Model Podcast, plural. It's a consortium website set up with the help of Stuart Clark up in Canada, the Scale Model Podcast. You can go to that site and click all the banner links for all the other podcasts participating in this spirit of cross-promotion with us. So uh, check out the other podcasts there. We've got a few blog and YouTube friends you're going to want to check out too that we like to follow and recommend because they're good content and they're good friends of ours. We've already mentioned Jeff Groves once, but the Inchai Guy blog, uh, you can check out all things 72nd Scale there. Mr. Chris Wallace, model airplane maker and uh, best buds with Ian here. Uh, he's he, he's nice, over. He's overrated. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a, a a nice YouTube channel and a great blog, and uh, he's just kind of coming along pretty nice with that. Always looking forward to what he's got going on. Sprue pie with frets, Mr. Stephen Lee, long and short form blog. Lots of good stuff. Lots of good models there. He's got. He's posting almost every day there. I know, not every and day. it's great stuff. I the the not only the fact that he posts nearly every day, but the consistency of the quality of what he posts is just great. And we got Jim Bates of Scale Canadian TV. He needs to step up his game. Yep, we're calling you out, Jim. And finally, Evan McCallum, Mr. Panzermeister36 on YouTube. Uh, We think he's got something cooking and uh, look forward to that dropping when it does. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Finally, if you're not a member of IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, or the national organization of IPMS in the country where you live, please consider joining. For all their faults, the IPMS national organizations are a bunch of modelers who give up some of their modeling time to help give structure and organization 
to the modeling community in your country. They are worthwhile organization. Please consider joining. Also, if you're an armor modeler, AMPS, the Armor Modeling Preservation Society, is an organization of armor-focused modelers. If you are an armor modeler, give them a look. All right, Dave, let's have a word from our sponsor. You got it. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder steam back airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Come and make it in Texas, Dave. We're down to double dig- at low double digits. At the time of this recording, Dave, it is 23 days until the IPMS National Convention in San Marcos, Texas. Go, man, go. Well, Ian, I got a task for you in this regard. Okay. Um, in the next, over the next three weeks, you need to like pick up Evan and take him out on some long drives. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he's used to hanging out with some guys like as old as his dad. Old guys. Yeah. Old yeah. guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, do do, I- do do me a favor. Strap him on the roof for some of the drive because we want him to use. Get used to the conditions that he's going to be riding to Texas in. He so. he might scratch the paint. I got I got a big trunk in the valley, so he okay. can he can sit in there. That'll you can it. put him in the trunk. That's fine. <laughs> that'll, that'll work. So. Well, all jokes aside, we have a a good report from uh, Mojovian Special Agent Double O Three, Mister Brandon Jacob, and. This is the, uh, now we're going to have him on in the next episode in some capacity. We're going to record a a blurb with him to kind of tie all this together and wrap it up until we all convene in Texas. Um, but he saved the best for last as far as uh, his, his, uh, biweekly updates. Okay. And, uh, he wants to go over Texas barbecue, Dave. Oh, (laughs) well, wait a minute. I heard New York barbecue was the way to go. Oh, that's going to get me hung in Texas. Where, where's the crickets? Sound? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you need to get more sound effects, Mike. Uh, we could do that. I think yeah. there is one. Ah, sure. There are many options regarding barbecue, and he's uh, he's got a few here he's going to mention. All um, right. His intention here is to guide us and attendees to good barbecue experience and uh, to the independent kind of higher quality craft establish- establishments. Gotcha. And we've we've said this as well. Please do not come all the way to Central Texas and let your Texas barbecue experience be a chain. Exactly. This is like going to Omaha and eating at Steak and Ale. Yep. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Steak and Ale isn't around anymore, but well, uh, yeah, whatever. Going to Outback or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> no, when you go go to these places, seek out. The, the the quality local establishment. Well, he says there are at least two good choices for attendees to enjoy barbecue in the San Marcos area, and they are Hayes Hayes County Barbecue. Okay, that's a, that's the nearest one to the convention center. All right. Uh, he says it could be a lunch de- destination or a quick dinner. He's eating there, gives it a thumbs up, and Blacks Barbecue. And he says actually Blacks gets his nod over Hayes County. So all right. We got some URLs. These are all close. We'd put them in the show notes, but I'm not, I'm not sure we have any show notes. Yes. Anymore, okay. I know. My fault. <laughs> Mea culpa. Yes. All you do and I do so little. Yes. I will get them done. How long have you guys been married? 
<laughs> no, you can't throw the joke back on me. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. <laughs> Didn't you read the the guest guidelines? Yeah. <laughs> 20, 25 years in and he hasn't got me an anniversary present yet. <laughs> well, he's got a bunch here if you want to venture out or catch one coming and going for the San Marcos area. Ah, Central Texas and the area surrounding San Marcos is the undisputed barbecue capital of Texas. And there are some very, very, in all caps, well-respected barbecue joints nearby. Yep. They might be too far for lunch, but they could be a stop on the way in or out of San Marcos. And note again, many of these craft barbecue places in Texas sell until sold out for the day. They don't have their trucks bringing them barbecue from some fake smoking warehouse or factory right. up, up, up somewhere else and never run out. Right. So yep. they're doing it by the pound. You know, Evan and you and I, 15 and a half hours, you know, we're going to be stopping for food once or twice, man. Well, that's true. Uh, let's let's hit a couple of these. That they all look good, and they're all they're all ranked in. Uh, there's a magazine, Texas Monthly, that puts out an annual top fifty, and uh, with within the commutable distance of San Marcos. Now, I'm not necessarily saying it's for dinner on a show night, but uh, uh, there's five here: Golby's Barbecue in Fort Worth, Interstellar in Austin, The Truth in Austin, Burnt Beans in Seguin, and Leroy and Lewis in Austin. So. We're going to be passing through both Fort Worth and Austin, so that may well ring our bell going down on uh, on the first. I don't know. I don't know if we got time to stop and sit for a barbecue joint on the way down, man. Well, we we be... can grab it to go. <laughs> we could just can't get ribs. Yeah, at least not the <laughs> at least not the driver. Well, we, 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 we bring some wet wipes with us. We'll be fine. Is isn't it a rental? <laughs> yeah, really. it is, but. Uh, yeah. Mike, Mike wants his deposit back. That's right. Well, of the ones on the on the top five list uh, is the one in Seguin, and uh, this one gets a an extra an extra nod from Mister Rob Booth, Mister IPMS Secretary himself. Yeah, he pulled him aside at a model show and suggested he sing the praises of burnt beans on the dojo, and which you did, and we're singing it here again on uh, plastic model mojo. So if you're coming into Austin, you're going to be, or going through on the way back or heck, if you live there, let us know how great it is. Or if you're cruising through Austin, either coming for going, you might want to check out burnt bean and uh, let us know what that's all about. I, I don't know if that's going to fit into our, our itinerary, Dave, but uh, I mean, if you got two, if you got two people saying, saying it's good. I've told the story before of going to the nationals in Albuquerque and how good it was. And I, all these years later from that convention, that's one of the things I remember just as like in Omaha, going to the steakhouse we all went to. And you got to admit that was one of the finer meals you've ever experienced. And honest to gosh, don't go to McDonald's. Yes. I know it's cheap. I know you're trying to save your money for that $60 photo etch set. Don't, <laughs> Don't do it. In the long run, you're going to remember the meal much more than the photo etch set that's fitting sitting in your drawer that you never get around to using. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, this is this is experience talking. Go out and experience the local food and the local scene. You'll you'll never regret it. Well, Brandon, thanks again. We'll uh, be setting up with a time with you to record a little segment in the run-up to the final few days before Nats. Yep. And uh, I'm sure we're going to enjoy some barbecue. Dave, I will send you this, and uh, 
Yes. And I'll get it posted, I swear. Well, guys, it's time for the Benchtop Halftime Report, and that's brought to us by Tackett Z, www.tackettz.com, the must-have tools for the model maker. You can check out Ed's website, again, www.tackettz.com, and see all the stuff he's got for organizing your workspace and uh, see what he's up to. Ian, you're first. You're the guest. What's up What's up on your bench? Uh, I am currently working on a uh, Ravel 41 Willie's Gasser, which is a, a type of race car. Gasser is a, a car where they uh, they basically build up the f- a race car. They build up the front end suspension to try to transfer as much weight to the back as you possibly can. And uh, Willie's cars from the 40s were great because they were the, the right wheelbase to do this. And it's a, it's a real nice kit. I've almost finished it. Uh, I'm not doing it up in the livery that uh, the kit came a lot of times the kit deckles in, in Ravel kits I find are not great. Um, buy, so I buy slick deckles, the aftermarket ones, and they're, they're very, very nicely done. And uh, so I, I just did it up in a livery out of my head and uh, lots and lots of fun with that. Almost finished it. Two things, uh, Ian. One, isn't that the Willys who who went on to make the G, the original Jeep? It is, yep. Same company. And two, yep. it's decals, not decals. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just abusing our Canadian friend. Well, now, now I know it's Dave. I mean, good Lord, you've been so polite to me for the last... Yeah, that's right. You know. That's right. <laughs> Got to smack you around a little bit just to keep that's you in right, mind. That's right. <laughs> Anything else? Uh, that's all I'm working on right at the moment. No, I... I I tend to spend more time with my real car in the, in the summer and, and do oh, yeah. in, the, in the winter, but um, <laughs> it sounds awful, but we've had this horrendous heat wave here and you go inside and you melt in about 15 minutes. So I have been spending a fair bit of time in the basement. And uh, the, the other thing is, is I, I painted a whole bunch of model cars sort of uh, one right after the other. And, and I'm teaching myself how to, how to polish out the, uh, the 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 paint jobs because last year I taught myself how to paint uh, miniature faces better and just kept working on them until I was happy with them. So this year I'm I'm trying to get my paint jobs uh, better because I uh, it's so hard to polish them without cutting through the paint and and, and you know it's so frustrating when you got to start over. So I'm uh, I, I'm teaching myself how to do it, and a lot of these old '40s cars that are really rounded are, are a lot easier because there's no sharp angles to to cut through the paint. So, sure. well, you don't get a, you don't get a lot of paint on those corners and edges either. Yeah. No, true, true. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, that's 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 my plan. That's that's what I'm working on right now. Mike, what's your bench top look like? It's a mess right now. It's about time for. A- <laughs> Oh, we've reached critical mass. I've reached critical <laughs> mess. I've got the E16 out of display case. I've been doing a lot of oil paint work on the catapult, and it's uh, looking. I'm pretty happy with it. Well, you've started to weather the prop too, right? Well, I was weathering the prop of the airplane. Yeah, I've been uh, playing with this speckling technique a lot, and uh, that's kind of new to me. I've not done much of that before, if any, really. And uh, I don't know. Question is, do you use a brass toothpick when you speckle? Uh, no, I don't. I'm 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 uh, financially challenged enough to not okay. be able to afford a brass toothpick. I think Evan's got a few if you need him. 
Yeah, right. He'll probably send you one of his. Uh, I'm using a piece of brass rod wedged into a, jammed into a piece of uh, balsa wood. So, Well, that's almost a toothpick. It almost is. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I talked about this a little bit last time. I started the weathering last episode, I think, and was uh, struggling with the gray a little bit. And I'd ordered some paints yeah. to kind of shift the palette a little bit. And it's all, it's all working out now. It's looking good. I've got the upper deck mostly done. I've got the back plate mostly done. I got to need the, the pulley at the front end needs some work and the tower needs some work and just haven't got to it yet. Now the tower is, is completely unweathered at this point. It's just painted in gray, right? Well, it's got a cloudy kind of, uh, you know, I did some, uh, some shading on it. And, right. But I mean, other than your airbrushing stuff, yeah, it's, I, I, it's, I would not consider this weathered. It's just, uh, gotcha. just the base coat. I want to try to mask off the turntable. I might have mentioned that last time and, and try to increase the demarcation between the bottom of the turntable and the top of the tower. Because yeah. the joint, the, I 3D printed the tower and the joint is so good that there's almost, in places there's almost no gap. Yeah. So it's, you can barely see it. So there's some weathering effects under the lip of the turntable that I want to do. Then I don't, ha- I don't have anything there to, to work against. So we'll see. Uh, on the aircraft, I've done a little bit of the preliminary distressing of the paint on the brown spinner. It's got the, you know, Japanese propeller color from right. Mr. Hobby on it. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to to show some separation between the, the prop blades and the, and the spinner cap. Because they're molded all together. Those they're molded 90s. all together. Right. Yeah. So is that something you can do with with your weathering or, or? Uh, yeah, I think if I can figure out a good way to mask it, I can I can fake it with paint. Yeah. Because they're they're all molded as one piece. That's uh Fujimi did that a lot back in the nineties. You didn't get a separate uh spinner and hub plate. So, you know, that that does represent kind of a challenge. Well, this has a hub and a spinner. It's two pieces. Yeah. But the blades are on the spinner cap, but not the hub. And that's weird. Logic would have it the other way, right? Exactly. Givens and Druthers would have it the other way. Maybe for right. some reason they did it the way they did it. But uh, yeah. Other than that, that's that's about it. I, I'm um I need to fit the canopy to the to the E16, and we talked about that a little bit the other night. But we need we need to revisit that conversation. Yeah. Because there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of moving parts there. Not literally, but uh, figuratively. There's a lot of. There are a lot of ways you could go. There's the decking between the the the, the sides of the fuselage, but then there's the the rail, the the contact surface that the fuselage is sitting on. Yeah. Right. That and, the canopy sits onto the fuselage. On. Right, and and some of that is exposed because the the, the canopy sections telescope forward toward the pilot from the back. Right. Like there's three or three sections, I think, that, that yeah. nest inside each other. So they don't exactly cover that surface. The the, the 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 horizontal lip that the canopy sits on for a couple of the sex the midsections of the canopy don't completely cover that surface. Yep. Yeah. So I'm thinking it should probably just be the exterior color of the airplane, but Yeah. Um But we'll see. Yeah. And we're gonna figure out how we're gonna mask it and I'm going to cover the back end of it so paint doesn't go up inside of it and all that great stuff. So you'll you'll manage it. I know I'll you. manage. 
I'm looking forward to seeing it when it's done. It's uh, I've heard all the progression of it, and it sounds so cool. Wow. Yeah. Well, I need to do a recap because it's been going a while. Going on. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Pretty much since the podcast began. Do you, Do you guys find when you have a project that that it, it draws out as you get closer to the end? you sometimes start moving a little bit too fast and not taking the carry you were taking earlier. That That's one of my real big bugaboos. I always have to be patient, you know, like, okay, you just painted it. Don't put the part on now. Wait till tomorrow when the paint's more dry and, and stuff. Either that or the exact opposite. The closer you get to the finish, the slower it gets until it just grinds to a halt. Yeah, that happens too. True. Yeah. <laughs> you're afraid you're going to mess it up. Yeah. 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 Well, Dave, How's the uh, Crusader coming? It's the F8 all the way from here on in. I got 20 days to get it done. Uh, I, After you and I talked last night, I uh, uh, went and primed the seams on the fuselage. Uh, actually, I'm relatively happy with them. And the rescribing that I've done, uh, when we're get done recording this, uh, I'm going to do some more work, but it's a dash to the finish line. I've got X number 20 days and I've got to finish it. And so I'm going to be down in the model room every one of those 20 days to get this done. So uh, I'll post in the dojo. You'll see the progressions go and uh, wish me luck. Cause uh, you know, uh, I got for, for our friends of model geeks, I got to get it there in Texas. So you're gonna you're gonna make it though. I'm 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 darn try, darn well trying. Getting the right sized base for your model, diorama, or vignette can be difficult and time consuming. Bases by Bill has the solution with their all new custom sized display bases. Offering sizes of 4 to 30 inches, you choose the dimensions you want and get the size you need every time. And they can laser engrave the base with a unit emblem or text all to your specifications. Better still, shipping is included within the lower U.S. 48 states. Built by modelers for modelers, Bases by Bill has bases and display cases for any type of model and for any size. Visit their website at basesbybill.com to see their products or to get your own custom-built base or display case quote. Use the code MOJO at checkout to apply a 15% listener discount to your order. That code again is MOJO for 15% off. Bases by Bill for all your model display needs. Guys, we've made it to the special segment tonight, which is the, the big reason Ian's here because he wanted to play along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's for the next installment of the Wheel of Accidental Wisdom. You guys ready for this? I am absolutely ready. Absolutely ready. So we've had a, about a quarter of the year here to, to restock the wheel. And uh, thanks to listeners like Steve Hustad and uh, several others, we've got quite a bit. Now, we got so many that. There may be a repeat on here too, but uh, if it is, we'll probably revisit it because uh, I've I've purged most of the old ones, but there's a few I wasn't sure about. So that's so all that's right. That's where we're at. Well, everybody buckled in. Spin yes, away. Sir. 
something which most modelers overthink, which really doesn't matter. I can think of one, but it'll it'll get me killed. <laughs> well, go ahead. I, I know that's what this is for. Go ahead. It, it, it's the uh, you know the exact color of a particular military model. You know, everybody's oh, what's the exact you yep. know 4BO or or whatever. I mean, these things were all painted at different factories at different times by different people, different products and stuff. There there really is no you know make it look right and it, if it looks right to you that, that should be good enough I, I find a lot of times people will fight over that you see it a little bit in car colors too you know like the, the, the this is supposed to be this color you know and, it, and it's not and i don't know i always think people are fussing a little bit too much for it yep no i like that i agree with it mike oh i think see i'm probably doing it now i'm overthinking it <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to come at this from a little bit different angle. I think sure. most people overthink, uh, the, they overthink trying something new. Yeah. And instead of either just trying it, I think you're, you're tempted to, to watch a bunch of videos and read a bunch of stuff and finally pull the trigger on, on the model you really want to do this on, which I think kind of creates an intimidation because you, again, you don't want to mess it up. Yep. And yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. I, and I think if if which I've I'm I've learned over the, the years of doing this podcast that uh yeah, you can you can just build up a paint mule or buy some built up kit at a show and strip it or prime it again and, and use that to try new things on. So I think if if you're overthinking it, I I, I think experience is the only way that you're gonna get there. You can virtual model your way into wasting a bunch of time. Reading, looking at magazines, surfing the net, all that. And you're going to get some information, but uh, you got to put it into practice. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I think people overthink contests and judging. Okay. Again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the, the contest is the small part of the fun of going to a model contest. And people overthink when they're building a model, you know, will judges like this? Will judges look for this? Will judges notice this? At the end of the day, when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to be looking back on all the awards you want. You're going to be thinking <laughs> with, those, with those, after thinking about your family and friends and all, you're going to be thinking about all the enjoyment you had when you went to the contest and you hung out with friends and you went out for that great steak or that fantastic Texas barbecue. And I think too many people overthink the model contest. All right. Spin away. Three answers. Spin it again. (laughs) Some of these are so good. Model club or show hilarity? The funniest thing. Oh, man. I'll start. Okay, go ahead. Way back. Gosh, this has probably been crap. Probably 20-ish years at this point. But uh, we had an elderly gentleman in our club who was probably in his late 70s at this time. Had this huge collection of 144 scale airplanes. And it was 
so he could remember what they all were. He cut out the name of the plane on the inst- out of the instruction sheet and pasted it to the underside of the wing on all of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, one one club meeting, he brought all of them, the entire kit and caboodle. And one of our club members, after was his name was Ray, wasn't it? Some for some reason, I think his name was Ray. I I, I, I'm he's. If he's still with us, he's a hundred and something years yeah. old at this point. So I think he's probably passed on. Yeah. But when Ray got done with his spiel about all these kits, all these models, and you can imagine a, a, an elderly guy just going on and on and on. One of our club members just deadpanned. How many boxes of cereal did you have to eat to get all those? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So that was probably one of the funniest things I ever happened in one of our model club meetings. (laughs) I've got two memories. Um, One, I won't go into other than the parody article that Mike wrote for the news, our local club newsletter uh, called Deuces. That was a parody of a series of articles on different German World War II aces is still one of the funniest pieces of parody I've ever read because, honest to gosh, if you've been reading the Aces column, you got four or five paragraphs into Deuces before you realized it was a parody. It was so (laughs) subtly done. It was just awesome. Now, (laughs) the, the other memory, and... I don't know that, well, it's kind of funny now looking back on it, but coming back from AMPS, uh, Mike and I are in the back seat of John McIntyre's pickup truck, and John is a chain smoker, and we're going over the high mountains in western Maryland in, I guess it was like March or early April, and we were in cloud, and it was spitting snow or sleet and John is chain smoking and he's rolling the window down to smoke and Mike and I are in the back seat and we are freezing our butts off. <laughs> it wasn't funny at the time but looking back on it it was pretty damn funny <laughs> Well, that was a, that was the same trip that Mac locked his keys in the car and almost broke the window. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 until one of the other club members noticed the uh, AAA keychain his keys were on. Yes. <laughs> I said, "Well, but I'm a member of AAA in Kentucky." And it's like, no, it applies everywhere. It's okay. <laughs> one of those A's is for America. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I have a funny story that. Uh, that involves our buddy Chris Wallace because it's it, it, it was oh good anything um, that'll embarrass Chris is good for me no it doesn't embarrass him it okay. was just it was just so funny we were we were at the hobby center and we were doing a build night and uh, not a little bit of everything you know people building a little bit of everything and there was sort of a core group of us that knew each other well and then there were some other people that were you know just sort of a little more casual and and two of them were nattering on and it was the most um inane conversation but it just never ended 
and you, you couldn't break in. And it was just, it, it was like, it was like a Monty Python skit with the two old women talking or something, you know, it was just going on and on and on. And finally there was a, a little break in the conversation and Chris blurts out in a loud voice for all to hear. I like blue. <laughs> it was just, it was the funniest thing in the world because it, it, it was just, you know, it was just as a name is what these people had been talking about. And that, that was years ago. And, and to this day, whenever we, 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 you know, come across something that's, that's like that one of us will turn to the other one and go, I like blue. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's, that speaks to, you know, you guys, are good friends and, and you're kind of like Dave and I actually. Yeah. 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 You, you've been friends a while and you, you just, you got all these inside jokes and, and things that, you know, uh, you guys find funny, funny memories. And Dave and I've got the exact same thing from oh, doing God, all these yes. model shows. And I've got another one that's, I got another one that's quick. If you want to, you guys might've heard it, but it, it, it bears repeating. It's funny. Chris and I and another chap were in my basement doing a build night. And uh, the other guy had bought, his kit at a uh, at a swap meet and it was started and he brought the same kit we we, we this was pre-covid and we we were doing it like three or four weeks in a row and uh, he kept bitching about this kit because he kept having to break parts apart and 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 uh, anyway he he wouldn't stop bitching about how terrible the, the stupid kit was and finally, just I reached over, and it was a uh, it was a dragon half track kit, a, dr- a German half track, and um, I reached over and I put it on the ground and I stomped on it, and then I turned around to my stash and I pulled out the exact same kit and handed it to him and just said, "Here, build this instead." <laughs> and I mean, it it cost me a fifty dollar kit, but it was worth it for the look on their faces, and we didn't have to hear about the bitching anymore. <laughs> How many bench hours does it take you to finish a typical kit? This is interesting. Oh, this is God. all over the place. I used to actually track this. I used to actually, at one point in my modeling, I tracked it. And I think a typical kit could run between 100 and 200 hours. <laughs> and and problem is that, that I counted a lot of time where I'm sitting at the bench procrastinating. So if you actually counted only times where I was getting something done, I'll bet you that number is half. But there are times I find myself sitting at the bench looking at what I'm trying to work on and either just thinking or or get sidetracked on some issue. So that's kind of hard for me to track. One of the things that's changed for me since I've been retired is rather than working here and there in the evenings, I, uh, I'm able to put in, you know, three or four hours a day when I, when I'm home. And, um, so I've noticed that that's about what it takes. If you, if you take away the, the amount of time, you know, waiting for paint to dry and that sort of thing, I, I would say that I'm finishing a, a model in, you know, 20 hours, 25 hours, something like that. And it's the first time I've ever, actually thought about it or, or, or considered it, but it's just more because I, uh, I know now I, I know when I started it and when I finished it, as opposed to it being over a period of months and not really rem- remembering, I, I can start something on a, 
on a on a Monday and be done it on a, on a Friday. That's very efficient. I hope to get there. I've got I've got no idea at this point. I used to kind of track it, and I was you know north of a hundred on some of my projects, and I was I, I would only ever build one thing at a time, so it was pretty good estimate. Um, at this point, though, I don't know. I've got right now. I've got two two projects on the workbench, and they are moving at a gl- glacial pace. So I, I'm not sure hours is the right metric for me. Yeah. So it, it reminds me, we we got a good laugh on vacation. We were in the in the pool at the condo complex where we were staying, and there was this sign. It's talking about you know pets, how close they could or could not be to the swimming pool. Generic signs you see around a a pool like that at a complex apartment complex or hotel or something. Oh, you told me Um, about this. Yeah. It's like, you know, no, no pets, et cetera, within 50 feet of the swimming pool or the fenced in area. And whoever had the sign made had no concept of the metric system (laughs) because it it had a metric equivalent to 50 feet, but it was in millimeters. (laughs) So, you could not get your pet. You could not get your pet within uh, fifteen thousand two hundred and forty millimeters of the sw- of the swimming pool. So that's hilarious. Yeah, that's that's kind of <laughs> where I'm with with kit builds. Like I started this stinking E16 in the winter of 2020. Yep. And here we are, 2023, uh, more than halfway through the year, and, and just now I'm in the painting stage. But you know, I don't care. I, I've I've finished other projects in between this one. Um, the KV-85 is pretty far along. I, I don't know. I, I, a lot. And I'm not sure hours is the right metric for me. Yeah. Right. It's millimeters. It's millimeters. That's <laughs> good. That was good, Ian. Modeling pet peeves. Okay. I can tell you one. Two. Off the top of my head. One. When you think you've eliminated a seam, but then you prime and you haven't. And two, and we've all had this, and I've finally gotten old enough to learn what to do. But when when the airbrush isn't working, when you're going to a painting session and for some reason it's just not happening, you know, you you fiddle with thinning ratios, you fiddle with... Uh, and it's just not, you clean the airbrush, it's just not working. And learning, one of one of the signs of mature modeling is learning to put it down and walk away. That there are, <laughs> there are some times that for whatever reason, it's the airbrushing gods have decided that now, it, tonight is not the night, and you need to just walk away. And I finally learned... Uh, as they say in Top Gun, not to push a bad position, but just to select zone five and escape. What, what I find it, it has to do with airbrushing, too, is uh, I'll divide everything up, right, and put it on little sticks and, you know, whatever. So I'll have everything that has to be painted black and everything that has to be painted gray and everything that has to be painted green and everything. And, I, and I'll go through that and I'll I'll paint everything. And then I'll strip down my airbrush and clean it, and I'm all done. And then I'll sit down and, oh, there's one more piece that I forgot yes. that needed to be painted. <laughs> it's like, ah, why did I do that? <laughs> yeah. No, there's always one piece that you meant to paint in a session that, you know, when you're using that one color and you always miss it. 
Yeah. Or, or you're painting it and you think that you've covered it well. Yes. And then it dries and, and you take off masking or whatever and you realize, oh, I'm missing, I missed the whole bottom somehow. Yeah. You know, or, or something. Yeah. Side water. Side water. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're get, we're we're gonna have to have a sidewater seminar at some point. Maybe make a book. If folks don't know, uh, nine times out of ten, I do not like when someone has the vertical edge of a volume of water visible at the edge of a diorama. I think it's a distraction and a bad look. I would I would do it differently, but that's my opinion. But it's a pet peeve of mine. I I I don't think it looks good. And we tease Mike endlessly about it. Yeah, and anytime we find a picture of one online, yes, we right. copy it and send it send it to the to the group chat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've done that to Mike a lot. That's that's my current pet peeve. Let's spin the wheel. Dumb modeler comments. Okay, uh, the one that pops to mind. That's not the color of the bottom of the ocean where the Titanic lays. I don't know, so you took mine. <laughs> that was a long time ago. That was at the Nats in Columbus. Yes, it was. And uh, we were in the model room and somebody, you know, I guess that's about when the, that wasn't too far after the wreck had been discovered. Yeah. In 97, no, not 97, early to 20. No, it was 90 something. I'd have to go back and look. And somebody had modeled a, a massive sidewater diorama, but this would be one of this would be the one that the one in ten that yeah. that would actually make sense. Um, they'd modeled the the Titanic wreck on the bottom of the North Atlantic. Yep, it was a nice model. We were walking by, and I guess we still really don't know if the guy was being sarcastic. Yeah, I, I I hope he was joking, but it, but the 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 tone of voice and the general posturing of the folks looking at the thing made us both think that <laughs> they were he serious. Was being serious. Yes. Yeah. The mud's not that color on the bottom of the North Atlantic. I will build them, but I'm not big on individual track links and I will often um, build rubber band tracks and just spend a lot of time using close pegs and stuff like that and, and gluing them individually to the return rolls. So you get a bit of, a bit of sag and stuff and it looks quite good. I think anyway, anyway, I was at an amps show one time and uh, this guy was looking at my model and he was talking to his buddy and he said, see, there's why you have to use individual track links because otherwise it just doesn't look right. And I thought, do I go up and say something? And then I thought, no, nope, <laughs> nope. I'll just, I'll just leave it. <laughs> Well, you must have done a good job with them. Yeah, obviously. I don't know if I've had it, heard any others or not. Probably. Yeah. Heck, maybe I said one or two. I don't know. Oh, I'm sure we've all said dumb stuff. <laughs> Usually we're kidding, though. We're standing in front of one of our friend's models making snide comments about it, but that's because usually that person's there and we're, we're having fun. I, I learned a lesson many years ago, and luckily – I only said it to one of my modeling buddies and it, I, I didn't say it out loud, but we were looking at the, the model cars on the table and there was one that looked like it had been built during a sandstorm and, and, and uh, you know, they, they just poured the glue on top of it and the whole thing. And it was just sitting there with all these great models. And I just said to my buddy, I said, like, this is somebody's best model. Like, And while I'm standing there, out comes the guy and, and all his friends and everything. And it was a guy like in his eighties 
and he'd had a big stroke and he fought his way back from the stroke. And this was the first model he'd actually been able to build after the stroke. And I felt one inch tall. Like, and so I, I now have this thing that I say, any, ta- any model that's on the table is somebody's best work. So it's, you know, somebody is proud of that model. So you, you should never be disdainful of it. Yep. No, that's true. Things modelers often get wrong. Oh, I'll tell you one that I can think of. Don't say color. No, no, no. (laughs) Decals upside down in the wrong place on the wrong wing or if you go along aircraft categories, you will find a model where the modeler has accidentally flipped the decal either top to bottom or you know, if it's one of those aircraft where the decal's on the lower the lower left and upper right, and they've switched it to the upper right or upper left and lower right. I mean, that happens more often than I think most people realize. I'm trying to think of any that I see. I've seen a couple where things aren't in the right position, like a, a gun is sitting at rest and it's in full recoil or something like that. I've got a shout out one for, for Tom Romanowski, a T-34 with both the driver's hatch closed and both of the vision port covers down. Cause Tom points those out all the time. One, I, I, it's just, it's general things. And it's just, I think things, people like building dioramas and, and scenes like, like that don't, don't really think about or haven't just haven't done the research. And I know some, because I've, you know, you get a little knowledge and you, you start, can't unsee things at right. that point, but like uh like a German MP40 submachine gun, and it's like they've dry brushed the entire thing with silver. Yeah. To mm. highlight it. The the lower receiver cover and the pistol grip on an MP40 are, are made of bakelite. They're kind of a red, dark red brown color. Sometimes they're black, sometimes they're dark red brown, sometimes they're can even be lighter than that, but uh they're not metal at all. That sometimes that gets gets mixed up a lot. A lot of people don't understand the way the, the rifles they're using in, in, the, in their dioramas are, are slinged. Yeah. And that sometimes that can be a real, real bad visual distraction. Um, I've seen, I've seen chipping on airplanes on wooden surfaces. Yeah, yeah. That one happens more times than not. I've seen that where you have an aircraft that's of mixed wood metal construction and they chip the, the parts that are wood. I've done it myself. We all have. Finally, you have that uh, that aha moment, and you you realize what you've been doing wrong for all these years. And uh, here's one that that absolutely, I built the Ravel uh, a Hunter seventy second scale Hunter. Really nice kit. I really enjoyed it. I built it, and when I got it done, I really like it. And then a modeler who actually wrote the book on on the the Hunter pointed out to me that I had added a uh, frame at the rear of the canopy where I thought, you know, of course it's canopy. There's the rear of it. There's got to be a frame. And on the Hunter, there isn't, you know, you just, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm at, I missed that. And, and we all do that. Nobody is, is, is perfect in that regard. We all no, make for mistakes. Sure. So live and learn, folks.
things you wish were standard in kits but aren't? Well, I would say that they're starting to come out a little bit, but uh, one of the things that always kept me away from uh, with, from airplane kits was my inability to paint the canopies. And uh, so when you have the canopy masks, I find that that makes it, you know, go, going from something that I can't build to something that I will build. And I know some of the kits are starting to come out with that, but uh, that, that's a real, that's a real uh one for me, you know, I wish they'd all come out that. Yeah. Canopy masks are, are, there have to, I won't build a kit unless there are canopy masks available. If they're not in the kit, if they're aftermarket, I'll buy them, but they, yeah, I need those. I'll tell you something that now I am wishing that we'd see in aircraft kits. And that is metal pedo tubes and antennas. Uh, and, mm. and not soft metal. I'm talking brass or or uh, steel or aluminum. That uh, because those those things just get bumped and banged and and ripped and and all. And metal metal replacements would be a great solution. And I think it could be done economically, but it isn't at this time. One thing that I used to like, and I don't think they do it anymore, when I, when I was a kid and I'd be building tanks and stuff, and I didn't really know much about them. I just thought they looked cool and I was building them. The the Tamiya instructions would list what the part was, the, the actual part of the thing, rather than just, you know, B12 or whatever. It would tell you what it was. And I, I learned a lot of lo- nomenclature that way and, and what things were. Um, the, the Ravel car kits still do that. All, all of the parts are all itemized, so you know exactly what what you're looking at and everything. I just thought we thought, especially for you know the younger modelers and stuff, it's it's a good way of of understanding of what you're doing. Mike, oh man, I don't know. I don't think I've got an answer for this one. I, I kind of have the opposite opinion. I, I think uh, some of these there's there's been a lot of kits released that are full interior that I'm, I'm just simply not going to go there. Yeah, just because it's the kit's architected for the full interior, so you're gonna have to p- at least put some small percentage of the interior in there to even build the kit. And I've said it before, I would rather pay forty dollars for a kit. Is that your, we're gonna get kit for forty dollars. That's a bad number. <laughs> sixty. I'd, I'd rather pay sixty dollars for a kit and then buy a sixty dollar injection molded interior set for the same kit. So a total, if I wanted the interior, one hundred and twenty dollars. I'd rather have that option than have to buy an eighty-five or ninety or hundred dollar kit with a full interior when I didn't want it. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I agree with that as well. So I kind of, kind of, kind of coming at that from the opposite side. I would rather the option be an, an upgrade than uh, than the standard. A bunch, a bunch of crap. I'm going to have to throw in the spares box and never use. I, I also don't like when model kits. Um, have structural components that are made out of photo etch and they don't give you a plastic alternative you know a lot of a lot of times there is but some kits don't and you end up having to build up something out of photo etch that's going to be in some way structural to the model and it always makes me worry that it's it's not going to work out properly so you want robust engineering included in your kits (laughs) i do yep yep that's me that's fair
Airbrush atrocities, your biggest mistake or gaffe. I, I can think of two of them. One at the end of a long mod. I've told this story before. One at the end of a long modeling session, airbrushing session. I had been airbrushing silver and there was still a little paint in the paint cup. And it was late at night and I clearly was not thinking clearly, although no modeling fluid was involved, I swear it. And I thought to myself it would be a great idea to empty the paint cup by putting the nose of the airbrush into the original silver paint container that still had half a bottle of paint in it and (laughs) pull the trigger to empty the paint cup back into the bottle. Uh, Ended up covering myself in silver, covering everything (laughs) in silver. And I like the tin man to like the tin. (laughs) And I, I still, to this day have no explanation for what I was thinking other than it was a really late night and I was tired. The other one I can think of is where I accidentally thinned a a paint with an incompatible thinner and didn't notice it and tried to airbrush it and ended up spraying silly string out of my airbrush. <laughs> yeah, I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did one just just recently, just uh, the last model that I built. Um, when I clean my airbrush, I will crank up the pressure to the top of the gauge just so that I can get as much stuff uh, blown out. So I actually made two mistakes because I, I cleaned it and I didn't reduce the pressure back to the proper pressure for using it. But I also didn't start painting off the model. Which oh, you, always a mistake. Do. Yeah. So I started painting a thing and I had, you know, 35 PSI coming out of the thing and it just blasted the paint onto it. And of course I had to stop right there and clean the part off and start all over again. And again, just being stupid, not, not thinking about what you were doing. Oh yeah. Mine's usually airbrush maintenance, just stupidity. I, I don't know that I've ever, had a big paint gap other than, you know, curdling paint, we use an incompatible thinner. We've all done that. I've, uh, I've split like badger spray tips by running a needle in too far. I've yeah. always freaking dropping the thing. Oh yeah. I've bent the nose cover piece. Just uh, dumb crap yeah. like that. Yeah. I've had to replace nose, those crown nose things on badgers a couple of times. Cause I dropped the airbrush. Uh, best mail order places for modeling or modeling adjacent stuff. Okay. What's your, what's your favorite? Uh, let me choose a couple. One is Hannett's for a lot of things out of Europe. Hannett's is a great go-to. I would say scale hobbyist. The, the stock is kind of inconsistent, but if they have what you want, their prices are very good and their shipping is very reasonable. And then, of course, model paint solutions. Uh, Dr. Miller has a lot of stuff. And uh, if it's not something you're on a rush for, if he doesn't have it, he can get it for you in reasonably quick order. And uh, his prices are always good. So 
I'm gonna I'm gonna name three. Um, I've got one, and it's actually a bit of a a bit of a shout out. I, I don't buy a lot of stuff online anymore, partly because I could I get a, a staff discount at the at the hobby center, so I'm much better off to have the stuff ordered in for me. Um, but there is a well, new to me. I don't think it's super new. A uh, company in Canada, in British Columbia, called Kit Masks, and it's uh, it's K I T M A S X, uh, and their website is kitmask.com. Uh, it's exactly what it, we're talking about here. They're masks for um, for for airplane kids, but uh, he is trying to. Kevin is the name of the fellow that runs it, and he's trying to build up his inventory. So if you have a model that there's no kit, there, there, there's no mask available for it, uh, you can send it to him and he will uh, design a mask for it. You get a free copy of that mask um, and then he just adds it to his inventory so that he can offer it to people. And uh, super nice guy, uh, highly recommend it. So it's uh, kit mask, M- K-I-T-M-A-S-X, and kitmask.com is his website. Oh, that's cool. Well, mine, I'm going to rehash from last time, Dave. It's Burbank's House of Hobbies. Yes. I just, those guys just kill it every time. Prices are good. And their service is top drawer. I mean, Southern California to uh, Lexington mailbox in three days. That's pretty impressive. I mean, they're, and you know, my orders get filled fast because I'm submitting on, submitting them on Eastern time. And they're getting them and packing them on Pacific time, so that helps. Right, right. you you get um, you get a little time dilation effect. That's right, and uh, the mail's running all the time, so once they get in the mail, it never stops really. So it's, it's a good place to order from. I, I like getting getting things from them, uh, paints and supplies. I get a lot of that from the, those guys. So shout out to them too. So Burbank's House of Hobbies is is, is right now my favorite mail order place. Most memorable model show or model club facilitated tour. Okay. Dayton, 1988. Uh, Nationals were in Dayton and the local club had arranged for on Friday night after the U.S. Air Force Museum closed. It was reopened just for convention attendees who bought a ticket and they opened up a lot of the aircraft and you could get in them. And I got in a B-36, a Mosquito, a Mustang, uh, a B-17. It was just, uh, I mean, it was a magical night. I was super impressed. And every other, no, no subsequent tour at any convention has ever matched that. For me, it would be, uh, I don't remember what year, but it was one of the early AMPS shows at uh, Havre de Grasse in, in Maryland because of going to um, to see all of the, all of the tanks um, at Aberdeen. They were all still at Aberdeen in those days. Yep. And uh, spending the, a whole day there at Aberdeen and just seeing everything and taking pictures of everything. It was, uh, it was very eye-opening. It was quite something to see all these things that I had modeled, but I'd never actually seen in, in, in person. So that, that, that's probably mine. Well, mine's on the same vein because it's at the same place. 
but it's going to go back a little bit earlier. It was the 1991 convention for the armor modeling, the, the association of military modelers, right? AMM preamps, the failed precursor to amps. Yep. Right. So the show was held, uh, in the Aberdeen area and we, there was a tour. We went out to the, the, you know, the open air museum, the public museum. And then we all boarded one of those mint green army school buses. And they took us to this, uh, facility behind the fence. And it was just this one warehouse building. And inside there was all the stuff that had, was not on display. And there was a pristine DMOG D7 half track in there that, uh, I think was still in the original paint. It was, it was, I think it'd been captured in North Africa and it, it still had these old, like, uh, you know, the, the Dymo plastic labels where you emboss the letters into the label tape, Yeah, yeah, yeah. all the dials and all the things on the instrument panels had, had, had those labels put on them in English. And cool. from one end to the other to this warehouse, there's this table down the center and, it had all this stuff that I s- assume was just, it was foreign material that had, I don't know if it had been categorized or cataloged yet or not, but there was, there'd be a German great coat and then there'd be something from the Korean war. And then there'd be something else. And there was everything in that place from, there were bound stacks of, of cannon grape shot from the civil wow. war in there <laughs> with, with the, you know, a, a wood plate with a stack of balls, another wood plate, yep. and another stack of balls, all wired together. You know, a hundred and something years old. We're in this facility, and I don't know what happened to all that stuff in, wow. the, in, in the museum. I think that DMOG might actually be down at Fort Benning now, but uh, I, 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 that's the only chance I ever got to see that stuff, and that, there was never another tour like that. Wow. So, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> I, I remember too, I was very lucky because. Uh, not being an American, I was supposed to have a passport to show them to be allowed in at, at Aberdeen. And uh, in those days, it's all pre 9-11 and everything. In those days, you didn't need a passport to cross between Canada and the U.S. So I didn't have my passport with me. And the guy just said to me, he goes, are you going to steal anything? And I said, no. He goes, OK, <laughs> in you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's do a couple more. We're getting a little long here, guys. We've had a lot. Ah, easy one. Kit wish list, top two or three. Uh, Privateer, 72nd scale. For purely selfish reasons, I would love to see a newly done, modern, by a major manufacturer, not short run, 72nd scale P-47H, just because I I love that airplane. What I would love in in a perfect world would be to have Tamiya do American street rods, American race cars, and that sort of thing, new new molds. It would just be amazing. Anything, anything they did. <laughs> uh, I still want a 135th scale BT5. Still waiting on that You're one. close. You're close. They're, they've they've come at it from either end, but that gap is still and, in the middle. And stopped. <laughs> I, I've got a I've got a 3D printed upper hull to convert one, but uh, we still like to see a full kit. Yep. And I think, to me, I should continue the French armor and do a Hotchkiss H39, H35, H39. I agree. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. that'd be fun. All right. Any others? No. It's a short list. There you go. I said one or two. 
We're going to do one more spin. One more spin. What life lesson have you learned from your scale modeling hobby? Patience. You need to be patient. <laughs> if if you are not patient, this hobby will turn around and bite you in the butt. Whereas if you are patient and you take your time and you think about things and you you move at a deliberative pace, etc., you will be rewarded. This this hobby really does I think teach patience, Ian. I think it's uh, to realize how important the the hobby is in your in your life, and that it's not just a a time waster or something to do if there's nothing good on TV. Um, you know, I, I I have the model hobby and I have my car hobby. When I announced to people that I was a, a retiring, so many of them were just horrified. Oh my God, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with yourself? And you know, my hobbies are such a big part of my life that I, I I consider them a big part of my life, and they're 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 what I love to do. And I think a lot of people maybe just sort of consider a, a hobby as just something you do when there's nothing else to do, as opposed to an activity that you actually strive to, uh, to, to work at. Well, I'm going to have to go way back. I think uh, it was my early involvement and it gets back to Mike Iadakavich again in our old club back in Tennessee when I was a teenager. Um, it was the first time that I interacted with adults outside of some kind of uh, where the adult was in a position of authority, right? A, a teacher or uh, an employer or a parent or uh, an elder of some kind. So it was the first time, and the first place I learned to interact with adults on, a, I guess, a more casual kind of friendship level as a as a non-adult. So I, I think that's what I got out of it. That's that's one thing that's always I've always thought about. That's a good one. That's that's a mm-hmm. good one, and one you wouldn't normally think of. I like that one. No. And and the younger you are, the more the age difference is a big deal to you know. Yep. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It would make sense. So thanks to all those folks who had patience with me. (laughs) (laughs) And now that we've used up a few wheel questions, send in some more wheel questions. That's right. Yeah, those were good ones. Those were fun. Uh, We got about just about seven left on the wheel, maybe maybe ten. So send us some more. Well, we're at the end of a long recording session. I'm assuming everyone has consumed their modeling fluid. Uh, so, uh, yes. Ian, Ian, how did you like it? And remind us again what it was. Yeah, it's a Perth Brewery Last Duel Lager, and it's a it's a lovely, lovely, uh, smooth lager. No aftertaste, no anything. It's just very nice lager. Well, good. So, highly recommend it. So, Mike, uh, I'm assuming the Russell's held up. Of course it held up. And about the only thing left I can say about this one is because I just saw another one recently. I think it was Rock Rosak actually who said to me, um, this is the the one I've recommended or we've mentioned on the podcast that uh, I've just gotten a slew of positive responses back uh, affirming my opinion of this particular bourbon. Yeah. Well, it is quality. There's no question. And for the price point, the quality for the price point is outstanding. And you? Uh, well, uh, again, uh, Hofbrau House Hefeweizen never disappoints, especially from a growler that has been drawn directly from 
the place where it's been made, uh, there is a big difference drinking fresh beer. And I never realized it until I, I started drinking the Hofbrau House beers from the from the growlers I'd gotten at the restaurants. And it's my it's my absolute single favorite if I can get fresh from fresh from the from the brew. Well, we're we're about out of time. We've got uh, just enough time to do some shout outs. Uh, Mike, do you have anybody to shout out? Well, I'd like to shout out again all the folks who uh, support Plastic Model Mojo through their generosity. Most recent is Mr. Rob V, who's come through us through Patreon. If you'd like to be like Rob and uh, support the show with your generosity, you could do so by going to uh, www.patreon.com slash plastic model mojo. There you can make a recurring contribution from any amount from a dollar on up. Patreon will handle the billing for you month to month and you can support the show that way. If you'd like to do a one-time contribution or manage your own recurring contribution, you can go to www.plasticmodelmojo.com. In the upper right-hand corner of our website, you will find a heart icon that will take you directly to our PayPal link and you can make a one-time contribution there in any amount you want or your manage your own recurring contribution. Anything is appreciated and we really thank you folks for supporting the show. So Rob V, thank you for your, your most recent contribution and uh, thank you. It means a lot. It's really humbling to have you folks uh, helping us out. Ian, you got a shout out? Yeah, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, to my employer now, the uh, the Hobby Center in Ottawa. We do a lot of uh, online stuff. We have a lot of used kits. So if you're looking for anything that's old, uh, hobsen.com, so H-O-B-C-E-N.com, you'll be able to find us there. And uh, I might even be the guy finding your kit for you. Well, that's a good shout out. I, I figured that's who you'd go with. My shout out is, and this is for a particular reason, uh, Dr. Miller at Model Paint Solutions. John goes above and beyond to help modelers. John's a teacher by nature. Um, and the reason I, I shout him out now was Mike and I have a, and Jim Bates have a group of uh, modeling friends known as, as the uh, Septemberists, a bunch of 72nd scale aircraft modelers stretched out all over the country now. Many of them had their roots in Cleveland. A couple of the Septemberists recently interacted with John because either they had brought bought brushes or John had rehabbed airbrushes for them. And John went above and beyond with the September, a couple of these guys to schedule video sessions with them to help walk them through particular issues. So, you know, that's, that's not the kind of customer service you get almost anywhere else. And, and, you know, uh, credit where credit do credits do. I have to give John a shout out for that. Yeah, very nice. Well, Ian, thanks for sitting in the third chair. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for playing along. And uh, and Dave, thanks for being so nice to me for so long. Well, it, it'll it's, it once once the recording stops, we're done. There there will be okay. the abuse starts again. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. That's right. Well, Dave, we're at the end, and as we always say, so many kits, so little time. Take it easy, guys. Take it easy. All right, good night.